Hi, welcome to the New Covenant Presbyterian Church Sermon Podcast, a congregation of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the OPC, in the San Francisco Bay Area. Amen. Well, please turn in your Bibles to Micah chapter 7. Micah chapter 7, we'll be looking at verses 8 through 17 here this evening. Again, Micah chapter 7, verses 8 through 17. Please give your attention now to the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. Do not rejoice over me, my enemy. When I fall, I will arise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord, because I have sinned against him. Until he pleads my case and executes justice for me, he will bring me forth to the light. I will see his righteousness. Then she who is my enemy will see, and shame will cover her who said to me, Where is the Lord your God? My eyes will see her. Now she will be trampled down like mud in the streets. In the day when your walls are to be built, in that day the decree shall go far and wide. In that day they shall come to you from Assyria and the fortified cities, from the fortress to the river, from sea to sea and mountain to mountain. Yet the land shall be desolate because of those who dwell in it and for the fruit of their deeds. Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your heritage who dwell solitarily in a woodland in the midst of Carmel. Let them feed in Bashan and Gilead as in days of old. As in days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them wonders. The nations shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall put their hand over their mouth. Their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent. They shall crawl from their holes like snakes of the earth. They shall be afraid of the Lord our God and shall fear because of you. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. You may be seated. Let's go before the Lord once again in a time of prayer. O Lord, in this life we have this great need of this patient endurance knowing that we will always face troubles and difficult circumstances in this life. And Lord, you've not really told us that that things will be easy. In fact, you've told us that whoever wishes to to live a godly life in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he'll suffer persecution. And so, Lord, in the midst of this very stark reality that's painted for us in the Word, we're very thankful for passages like this, which yet speak of our triumph. And so, Lord, we do pray that that through these words, which were written to comfort your people in the 8th century B.C., you would yet continue to comfort your people, even in this day, in the 21st century, after our Lord's birth, resurrection, and ascension. We ask all of these things in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. One of the things that's very clear in the scriptures is that there are only two kinds of people that, and that between these two kinds of people, there will always be opposition. This is one of the, the first things that we see happening 
Uh, in the Bible, immediately after the fall, there is the opposition, the enmity which God himself places between the serpent and the woman and between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. God himself has placed that enmity between these two groups. And once God did that, from that point on, all throughout redemptive history, there has always been this sort of opposition. Something that Augustine picked up on in the, at the end of the 4th century and in the beginning of, of the 5th century when he wrote The City of God. He said that in this world there is a contrast between these two cities. There is a city of God and there is the city of man. And these two things are constantly at war with one another. There can be no peace ultimately between the two. There will be a triumph of one over the other, but there will always be an opposition between the two. And this was something that Augustine got uh, exactly correct. This is something that we see all over in the scriptures. And even in the scriptures, we find it very often portrayed as a battle between two cities. And this is something of what we have here. We have uh, two women who are being personified here. We have on the one hand, Jerusalem, the heavenly city, the city of God. And on the other hand, we have Babylon, the city of man, who which always opposes God, which even down to Revelation, we see these same two women in contest. And very often in this life, it appears that Babylon is winning. There is oppression upon the people of God, and there are difficulties that we face. And yet here, as in many other places in the scriptures, we read of the final triumph of Jerusalem, that Jerusalem will always triumph in the end because her God is with her. No matter how ungodly the opposition appears, no matter how strong the opposition appears, no matter how great the persecution, yet we know that in the end, Zion will be victorious. And this is, of course, applicable, as I've said, all the way, it goes all the way back to Genesis 3, 14, all the way to Revelation. So, of course, it includes your lives here this evening. We face these exact same situations, the exact same struggles between the exact same groups of powers. And it's comforting for us to know, as was prophesied in the days of Micah, and as is spoken very clearly through the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the church cannot fail. Though the church suffer for a time, ultimately the church cannot fail. God will save her church, his church. God will save her. Now, Remember where we are in the book of Micah. We are looking at this, the conclusion really of the entire book. We have looked at the way in which Micah has depicted sin and then given hope for God's people through the, the coming Messiah. And we looked last week at how verse 7 in particular, the last verse we looked at last week, is the great hinge of this third cycle of going from sin to salvation. Verse 7 is the great hinge. Zion is dwelling in a great darkness. And it's a darkness not just because of opposition from the outside, but because there is a great amount of sin within Zion itself. The people of God have uh, gone completely against the law of God, and Micah has pointed that out to the people. And he gives this one word of encouragement to the people who are faithful to the Lord. And he says, Therefore, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. And from this point now, Micah begins to describe the hope which is coming for the people of God, which we see in the passage before us. 
Now, this passage is broken up very easily into three particular parts. Even really verses 18 to 20 go with it, but I think it's it'll be good for us to deal with verses 18 to 20 as the climax and conclusion of the entire book uh, is one separate sermon. But there's really four parts if we include 18 to 20, but we'll look at three of them here this evening. There's first verses 8 to 10, then verses 11 to 13, and 14 to 17, and then concluding with 18 to 20. And what Micah does is he uses a number of different figures to describe this coming hope for the people of God, done in in all images that are related to one another, but they're yet slightly distinct and different. Particularly in verses 8 to 10, we have the taunting enemy. There's the address to the taunting enemy. There's the contest between these two women. And the main thing that Micah is pointing to is the need for a patient endurance of suffering. So we'll look at that 8 to 10 under the heading of patience. Then we have the, the, the figure of Jerusalem, particularly now as a city, being built up and the enemy being destroyed. So we know it's, we're talking about cities here. And that's in verses 11 to 13. And the main thing that's being emphasized in verses 11 to 13 is the triumph of God's people. And then in verses 14 to 17, we have the imagery of, of a shepherd, God leading his people. And then there we have a prayer, which is recorded by Micah. And we have the answer to the prayer in verses 15 to 17. So those are the, that's the way we'll look at this particular passage. Verses 8 to 10, the patient endurance. Verses 11 to 13, the triumph of God's people. And then in verses 14 to 17, the prayer for that triumph, which Micah gives. So look with me again, then, at verses 8 to 10. You'll notice here there is this contest that's, that's recorded between uh, two women. It's, it's a little bit obscured in the English, but it does come out, say, in verse 10, where it says, She who is my enemy will see. Shame will cover her. But even um, in Hebrew, there's a distinction between the word you can either be masculine or feminine. So it's, that doesn't come out in English. Uh, but here, all of these are feminine. So all these are, all the yous, do not rejoice over me, my enemy. Um, whenever it refers to that enemy in the second person, then there is, or even in the third person, um, there's he versus her. All of those are related to, um, to two women. They're all feminine. And so we have this contest between these two women. And here, Zion, Jerusalem, being personified, asks the enemy in verse 8, or tells the enemy, saying, do not rejoice over me, my enemy. So there is this situation where the people of God are struggling. There is this opposition that has come upon the people of God. And even that, because of her own sins, which we see later on in verse 9, uh, there is a, uh, and God often did this without, in the history of redemption, he would bring the Assyrians against the people of God. He brought the Babylonians, which were the enemies of the people of God, but yet they came because of the sins of God's people. And yet here, even in the midst of this persecution, notice how confident Zion, Jerusalem, can be, even in the midst of being persecuted, even without any sort of outward evidence of anything changing as far as the circumstances of the church, yet she can still say, addressing her enemy directly, do not rejoice over me, my enemy. Now, why is it that Jerusalem can say such a thing to her enemy, even in the midst of this great suffering? Well, we see that in the next part in verse, last part of verse 8. Two things are said. When I fall, I will arise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. So there are two things that are said. Though I fall, 
I will, I will arise. I recognize that I am in this low position, but I know that in the future I will again arise. Now, Jerusalem understands this because of the promises which have been made to her. God has promised that he will save his church. And so even as the circumstances appear very, very dire, we can still look with confidence at our enemy and say, Do not, don't rejoice over me, even though it may look like you are winning now. There is coming a time where God will act on my behalf. Though I am down, I will arise. And the second thing that's said is this, though I sit in darkness, so again, my circumstances are bad, God is a light for me, or will be a light for me. The, the text can actually go either way. It may be better even to say that God is a light for me even now. That is to say, even, even though Zion is sitting in darkness, she knows that God is her light even now, that he is with her, and because of that, he knows that he will, that she will arise. She knows that these things will be turned around. And because of that, she can have confidence. This is, this is the great hope that the church can have in the face of great opposition, where we can even say to those who persecute us, don't rejoice over me. Even though it appear that you are victorious now, you have simply won a small battle, but the war is already over. Now, this language of describing the church's situation as being in darkness, but then the Lord being a light and, and this moving from light, darkness to light is likely an allusion to uh, creation. One of the things that we've, we've been uh, going over in the morning services the last couple of weeks is the doctrine of creation. We've seen it in Genesis chapter 1. And I've noted the, the reason why creation is so important is because salvation is often depicted as a new creation. And that's exactly what we have here. There is salvation is a going from darkness to light, as in the first day when God said, let there be light. It's the sovereign act of God. We, we have nowhere else to look because no one else can do that work. But yet Zion is confident it will be done because God himself is my light. He is my light and he will act for us. Now, this is the confidence, again, that all of you ought to have in this world when you face opposition from unbelievers. But there is even a greater way in which we have a hope that even couldn't be articulated in the same way in Micah's day. Because for us, we live in the days where we're not just waiting for the light to come, but we look back on the light which has already come and is even now shining in the world, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. The beginning of this new creation salvation began when he was raised from the dead and he himself entered into the fullness of the new creation. And with that, with the resurrection of the dead, all of our enemies have been ultimately defeated. Now, there is a remnant of them. They are they still walk around and oppose us, but the decisive victory has already been won. It would be like a, and this has happened sometimes if you know uh, history. Sometimes there's a war, it ends, treaties are signed, but yet the news of the signed treaty doesn't reach the, the furthest outskirts of where the battles are taking place. And so there are maybe even enemies that are fighting one another after the war is already over. And this is really a picture of the situation that we're in today, which is even different from the situation that Micah was in. The war is already over. There, there may be a sense in which battles are still being fought, but the outcome has already been decided. And it's been decided in our favor. 
And because of that, we can know no matter how low the church becomes, the church's victory because of her union with Christ has already been won when Christ was raised from the dead. And so this ought to give you a great amount of encouragement as you face opposition in this world. Now, in verses 9 and 10, with this particular statement towards the enemy being complete, in verse 9, there is a shift to Jerusalem speaking not necessarily to another woman, but now speaking in her own heart. She's now speaking about what she's going to do in light of these dire circumstances, which again have not turned around for her yet. She says this, I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my case and executes justice for me. He will bring me forth to the light and I will see his righteousness. Notice at the beginning, I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him. There is a recognition by Jerusalem here that even though there is an oppression from an enemy, from without, that has no knowledge of the actions and will of God, there is yet still a recognition that the sufferings that Jerusalem faces are still ultimately due to her own sin. Notice notice that. There she's being opposed by an enemy that's not, doesn't think anything about the ways of God, but even so, Jerusalem recognizes that it's not ultimately because of the opposition of the enemy that she's undergoing this this these difficult circumstances it's because the weight of her own sin which she has committed against the lord now we don't always suffer because of our own sins there are other reasons why we suffer but yet if we were to ask why is it that the church is weak today we cannot say ultimately that it is because we are opposed it's not because of the pressures we face from the outside world to compromise on various things, which we've seen compromise over the past couple centuries. It's not for any of those reasons. It is because we have sinned against the Lord. It's because the church has not stood up for the truth as the church ought to stand up for the truth. So these two things go on at the same time. There may be opposition from the outside, but there is always the need for the church, even when there does not appear to be a connection between, as far as we can logically deduce a connection between these events and our sin, we still have to ask the question, are we languishing because of our particular sins? This was something that Micah wanted to be very, very clear in his book. We've talked about it several times. When you see the Assyrians come, it's not because your army was not strong enough. When you see the Babylonians come, it's not because you made a political error. It is because you have sinned against the Lord and he is bringing these upon you as a judgment. And so this these kinds of passages are always, they're meant to give us hope, but they're also meant to get us to examine our own hearts. Are, is the church struggling? How much of the church is struggling is due to my own personal sin, my own inability to love others, my own lack of boldness, my own lack of zeal for the Lord? And will you confess those sins to the Lord, recognizing that very often we do struggle for these particular reasons. Remember what happened with David with when he's leaving Jerusalem. He's been betrayed by his son Absalom, and there's Shimei there who is cursing him. 
now he's cursing him for no good reason. There's there's absolutely no no justifiable reason for the cursing. And one of the soldiers says to David, shall I strike him down, this, this dead dog who would dare curse the Lord's anointed? And David says, no, don't do that. I know, I've, I, I have sinned. He may not be thinking that this is what he's doing, but I know this is from the Lord. And so he bears well the curse, and he repents under that, even though the curse that he receives from that particular person is not actually fair. And so this is... This is um, a way in which this sort of patience is supposed to be worked out. There's supposed to be a, a patient enduring of the sufferings that we have in this life, and it ought to lead us to a humility. I know that this situation is in some ways my fault. I have sinned against the Lord. And yet, even as I wait for his deliverance, I will hope in him, recognize my sin before him, and repent now, this is the, it's a very godly position that the church takes. And notice she says she will bear this weight, this indignation, until God pleads my case and executes justice for me. There is no other place that the church is looking for in terms of uh, hope for salvation. She recognizes, until the Lord act on my behalf, there is no other place for me to turn. In this way, it's very similar to what we saw in verse 7. I will wait for the Lord. I've got nowhere else to go. As Peter said, where else have we to go? You alone have the words of eternal life. And so there is this waiting upon the Lord. And there is this confidence that it, that in some point in the future, God will bring the church forth into the light. And when that happens, the church will look upon the righteousness of God the righteous vindication of his church through the man whom he has appointed, the anointed of the Lord, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. This is when the church looks upon the righteousness of God, a righteousness which all of you, by with the eyes of faith, look on through his spirit. Now in verse, then in verse 10, the last part of the, the patient endurance of the church, we see, that the church doesn't just bear the indignation of the Lord and then wait for the Lord. She She's also very confident that in that last day, when she is vindicated, it'll be at that point that she will look with triumph upon the enemy. She will, the person, the, the city of, of man, Babylon, will look and be utterly ashamed because of all the things which she has said to Jerusalem. This is the one it says in describing Babylon. This is the one who said to me, where is the Lord your God? The one who uh, opposed the true church and when she was triumphant over the church, mocked and said, what can your God possibly do for you? There is coming a time when this will be the reality for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We will be openly vindicated in the eyes of all the world, and those who oppose the church will see that our God is the one who fights for us, and that we are in fact righteous, and all things will be made right. Now, this is uh, a lead-in to the next section in verses 11 through 13, where where Zion is is spoken of not so much in terms of a woman, but more particularly in terms of a city. And these things often go together in the Old Testament. Um, cities were personified as women, even as mothers. 
And so here we have the, the more city uh, aspect of the figure. And in this particular um, set of, of images about redemption, there is a greater focus on the triumph. This is really the main thing that's being emphasized in verses 11 through 13. That Zion will be patient because of the triumph which is coming, which is now described here. And it's described in two ways. First in verse 11, there is the description in terms of Zion as a city being built up. And then in verse 12, which is meant as to be parallel and explain the previous verse, there is the the ingathering of all the nations. One of the, the main way which we which we really see concretely, how is it that Zion's built up? We see it as all of the nations come and gather and stream in to Zion. So the, the figure is given first in verse 11, in that day when your walls are to be built, in that day the decree shall go far and wide. The city which was destroyed and abandoned by God to show his displeasure with his people is now to be built up. And concretely, as I said, in verse 12, that means that people will stream in from the furthest corners of the world. That's how you know that God has lifted up the head of Zion, that he has restored her. When, when you see people gathering from the furthest corners of the world. Now, uh, this description is, is uh, put um, in a number of, of interesting ways. First, it says, from Assyria and the fortified cities which with the fortified cities, there's a, a play on words with the word for Egypt. They sound very similar. Assyria was to the north. Egypt was to the south. And so what Micah is saying here is there is, they will come from the north and from the south, which is just a poetic way of saying they'll come from everywhere. They'll come from the, even from the enemies, your greatest enemies, both the ones that are from the north and the ones which are from the south. It said again, then another, again, poetically from the, the fortress, the, for, the fortified cities, which is a reference to Egypt, and then to the river, the river Euphrates, up to the north again in the area where Assyria was. They'll go from the north and from the south, from the south and to the north. It'll be from the sea to the sea. It'll be from mountain to mountain. They will come from absolutely everywhere. God's people will be built up, and there will be this triumph which we have over our enemies. Now again, as I as I describe this, you're probably thinking, well, this is this is obviously happening. It has to be happening to some degree. This is exactly what happened in Pentecost. This is part of the, the great redemptive historical significance of that event. This is the beginning of when we see these things being fulfilled, that the people are coming from the north and from the south. This is the beginning of the triumph of the church over her enemies. Now, it's not consummated yet, but yet it has been begun. And so again, this ought to give you uh, even more confidence and comfort in this life to think that you are beginning to see, you have seen and do see in this life, in your own life, the beginnings of this very victory, which Micah's people hoped for desperately and longed to see. These things which they longed to see, you have as a reality, as a comfort for your souls. And this is then contrasted. On the one hand, you have the one woman being built up, in verses 11 and 12, this is then contrasted with, with the other woman, who in verse 13, yet the land, there, this probably should be read more as an adversive, but the land shall be desolate because of those who dwell in it and for the fruit of their deeds. The land of the peoples who are leaving their lands in order to come to Zion. That's, that's the idea. All throughout this passage, there's this contrast between these two groups. The one is built up, Jerusalem. The other is completely laid waste and desolated. 
And this again is not something we see in this in yet, but it is something that will be the case. This is what Revelation describes as it describes Babylon, that great enemy of God's people being completely destroyed and it recounts all of the nations around who had grown grown rich through doing business with her how they they now mourn and say oh how babylon has fallen oh how babylon the great has fallen this is the triumph which the church will see there is no way it can be avoided and this is what is being promised the church cannot fail Though the church suffer for a time, God will save her. And so because of that, then, we have the patient endurance in verses 8 to 10. We have a greater description of the triumph in verses 11 to 13. In verses 14 to 17, we get a picture of what we are to do practically in this, in this particular situation as we wait for that final vindication. Verse 14 is, records a prayer which is offered up in light of these realities. In light of my need to endure patiently sufferings in this life, in light of the coming promise of triumph, O Lord, hear my prayer. And then in verses 15 to 17, we have the answer to the prayer. So what is it that's actually prayed for? Notice the figures are um, in in terms of of a shepherd. There's now shepherding language. Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your heritage, who dwell solitarily in a woodland in the midst of Carmel. Let them feed in Bashan and Gilead as in days of old. O Lord, shepherd your people. Show yourself to be the good shepherd who cares for his sheep. Go and seek them out, care for them. Let them be brought again into a wide and spacious land. The, The land of Bashan and Gilead were to the east of the Jordan and were great for pasturing. Uh, the tribes to the, that settled that area to the east of the Jordan uh, settled there because of this advantage, because of how good that area was for pasturing. Lord, bring out your church again to a place where there is no more enemies, where there are no more enemies, where there is wide pasture lands where we can sit down and refresh ourselves. Very similar to the thing that's spoken of in Psalm 23, the, uh, that asking that the Lord, saying that the Lord will make his people and does make his people to lie down in green pastures. He leads them beside quiet waters and he restores their souls. This is what we pray for while we go through these sorts of difficulties. And so if you want to know what is it that, that you should do when you see the church struggling, here it is. It's pray. Ask that God would be a shepherd to his people. And here we have even not just that we should pray, but even what to pray for. Here is a a prayer that's being modeled after the triumph, which has just been spoken of previously. Lord, bring about the salvation which you have promised to your people. Bring about the restoration of your church, even as you have promised, even as you sent your son in order to obtain. He himself gave his life for the sake of the building up of this church. May it be that we see that church built up in our day, shepherd your people and restore to us the joy of our salvation. This is the way we always ought to pray. Um, one of the things we clearly see all throughout the scriptures, which is even said in our standards in the, in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, that really the entire word of God is of use to direct us in how we are to pray. We are to pray through the things which God has promised to us. We don't, we don't just presume upon them, but as we wait 
in our painful situations, we ask that the Lord would hear us, that the Lord would act on our behalf. And notice then the way the Lord responds. The prayer is given in 14, and then now the, the first person's the eyes now become the Lord. As in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them wonders. Notice, the Lord is saying, There will be a future time when I will act on your behalf, and when I do, it will be like the days when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. Something that you may be tiring of hearing me say, but um, it's very common in the prophets, that salvation for the prophets is a new exodus. That there is this there is this comparison between those two events. And this is what God says. Just like I did it the first time when I brought you out of Egypt, so I will work again. This was this was the great thing that the prophets put before the people of God. I will act again like I did for you when you were under the yoke of Pharaoh. I will act again on your behalf uh, to save you, just like I did then. And this is this is the the significance of of why we when we were looking at the the book of Matthew why it's so important for Matthew to draw these parallels between Moses and Christ because he's wanting to indicate this this salvation that the prophets spoke of this has begun with the Lord Jesus Christ when is it that God acted like he did in bringing out the people of God from Egypt he did it when he sent his son the Lord Jesus Christ when he brought us out from dominion not just to to Pharaoh, but dominion to sin, death, and Satan himself. He has delivered us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the son of his love. This is the great act that God has always promised. And notice again here, all throughout the prophets, there is simply, there's no other salvation that the people of God were offered other than the salvation which would come in the son of God. Notice that there's no other hope. When you struggle in the 8th century BC, Christ will come. As you wait, even in the centuries leading up to that, Christ will come. And the same thing is true for you. You struggle now, but but for you, it's Christ has come. Christ has come. Your victory has been won. It will be consummated one day. Patiently endure and wait. God will vindicate you in the end. Now, there are uh, even more allusions to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ in verses uh, 16 and 17. Notice there is the, the, the language of open vindication again of the people of God. The nation shall sheen, they shall be ashamed. They shall put their hand over their mouth. Their, their ears shall be deaf. They won't have anything to say because it will be perfectly clear who the sons of God are and they will be triumphant. And notice then the way that the enemy is described. This is where we get more uh, more allusions to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. They shall lick the dust like a serpent. They shall crawl from their holes like snakes of the earth. Here the enemies of God are described like snakes. And them licking the dust is a very clear reference to the curse which was placed upon the serpent in Genesis chapter 3. That you will you will go about on your bellies like it's, it describes here. You shall crawl around and you shall lick the dust. And there is then a very clear allusion then to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, that very first gospel promise, when there would be one from the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. And here Micah is looking forward to that great day. All of those who oppose the church, they are the seed of the serpent. And all of them will lick the dust. They will bear the curse of the serpent. And Christ himself will crush the head 
of all of those who oppose him. This is what Paul says in Romans chapter 16, encouraging the believers there. God will soon crush Satan under your feet. That's the great, that's the great language of encouragement that comes to the church. This is what Mike is reminding the people of. God will soon do that. Patiently bear the suffering and affliction of this life because there is coming very soon a deliverance from the Lord. And so what is it then that you are to do when you see the church struggle and even as you struggle as being a member of the church? Micah here puts three things before us. There is the patient endurance, repenting of sins and believing in the promises of God, which we saw in verses 8 to 10. There is a very a very great thing that we ought not to overlook is the meditation on the future triumph that we will have, to meditate on the glory of what is coming for us. And then finally, there is the prayers. We are to ask that the Lord would act for us, ask that he would advance his kingdom. It's one of the things that the catechism says, what do we pray for in the second petition? That the kingdom of grace may be advanced, but that also entails, in addition, the kingdom of Satan being destroyed. As the kingdom of God advances, the kingdom of Satan is destroyed. And then we also pray that the kingdom of glory would be hastened. That's really exactly what Micah is praying for. When we pray for those sorts of things, we know that we have God's ear. This is exactly what God is doing in this world. He is out to advance the kingdom of his beloved son. And ultimately, these things ought to give you great hope for the future. In the contest between these two cities who have always opposed one another, Jerusalem will always win. It very often in this world does not look like that's going to be the case. Very often, Babylon is very strong. Very often, the church is very weak. Very often, the church is hindered with her sins. But the difference is this. God is with his church. And because of that, the church can never fail. Though the church suffer for a time, God will save her. Let's pray. Father, how thankful we are for your grace, for the way in which you have given us such great words of hope and encouragement. Lord, we we recognize and we lament the weakness of your church in our own day. We can see the weakness of your church in the past. We can see how the sins of your church have led us to this very place. And Lord, we can see our own weakness, our own lack of zeal for you. Lord, give us the grace to endure patiently the indignation that you have against your your church for her sins and to be quick to repent, but also, Lord, to look with hope to the future, knowing that there is coming a day when we will be vindicated. Lord, what a great day that will be. Give us, Lord, the grace to think more on that day when the Lord Jesus Christ returns with all of his angels and all that is wrong in this world is set right. Lord, we confess that we so often do not think of that day as we ought. But Lord, this is the great day of salvation that you have made and that you have set apart for us. Lord, help us to think about that day whenever things go wrong with us in this life to then patiently endure in a way that's honoring and pleasing to you. We ask all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening. 
If you'd like to find out more about our church, you can visit us at newcovopcssf.com. That's N-E-W-C-O-V-O-P-C-S-S-F.com. If you'd like to worship with us on Sunday, our service times are 10.30 a.m. and 5 o'clock p.m.